Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachron, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Law. Today I'm speaking with James J. Park, Professor of Law at UCLA. He's an expert on corporate law and securities regulation, and the author of the recently published book, The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. The Valuation Treadmill examines the growing issue of securities fraud, illegal practice of financial manipulation to deceive investors. Through a series of detailed case studies of companies like Enron, Apple, and General Electric, James details how the pressures of continual future growth create perverse incentives, lead to fraudulent financial disclosure. James, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Caleb. Of course. You know, I think that this is a really timely book, and what's great about it is that, it, you know, it takes us up to the, the, the present moment, but it also provides a lot of uh, great background detail that I think will be really valuable for listeners trying to make sense of you know, some of the complicated news stories uh, that we're seeing today. But before jumping to the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little about yourself and your background. Uh, sure. Um, I've been a law professor now for about 15 years, but I spent a brief time in practice um, doing securities enforcement work, both on the defense side and I'm also working for the New York Attorney General, who was Elliot Spitzer uh, at the time. And um, I uh, started practice about 20 years ago, which was right around the time uh, when Enron filed for bankruptcy. That was followed by WorldCom about six months later. And then this led to the passage of a major law called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. Um, So when I began practicing, um, that was the hot topic of the day, securities fraud by large public corporations. Um, I spent a lot of time defending uh, investigations brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, also by private plaintiffs. I then essentially switched sides and went to the government uh, side and investigated large public companies for accounting fraud and other uh, types of securities fraud. And so when I entered um, academia, I started out at Brooklyn Law School in, in New York City, it was sort of natural for me to write about what I what I knew. And, and so I wrote about um, the sort of different values expressed by securities fraud enforcement, uh, did a lot of uh, empirical work looking at securities class actions and how judges uh, decide uh, those sorts of, of cases. Um, and as I you know built up this reservoir of, of knowledge about five years or so, I thought maybe it's time to, to write a book, to write something that um, sort of uh, kind of is a capstone of, of the things I've been been looking at over time that gives my own view about uh, securities fraud as a regulatory problem. And so um, started working on on the book about five or six five or six years ago and it came out this uh, th- this past July. Could you define this term for our listeners, the valuation treadmill? It's, it's a great great term. Uh, what, what's the origin and, and what do you mean by it? It's a great, um, a great question. the The origin of of the term was a um, there's a valuation 
uh, guidebook published by McKinsey and Company that um, I would highly recommend for anyone interested in, in valuation. And they, they have a little paragraph in there um, about uh, the modern uh, valuation process, and they liken it to a treadmill. And, and they basically say that, you know, if you are a public corporation, um, you are continually subject to uh, the pressure to prove that you are continuing to generate uh, profits, uh, revenue, um, and uh, you do that by meeting projections, projections of your performance that are made uh, prior to a period. Um, if you meet that projection, your stock price will stay about the same. If you, if you miss it, though, your stock price can plummet because investors are basically uh, reevaluating um, their, their assessment of your future performance. And that's basically what a stock price is, is it, it's basically a guess um, about what the company is going to earn in the future. Um, and modern stock markets um, are relentless. You know, if you ever read the Wall Street Journal every three months, that's all that people are talking about. Did this company meet its projections? Did it not? And my argument is that um, this is sort of a dynamic that made securities fraud a major regulatory concern um, because markets were not always like this. 40, 50 years ago, um, we didn't have as much of a reliance on meeting quarterly projections. And so the story of the book is, you know, how do we sort of get from that world of the 1940s and 1950s um, to the present day? And how does that result in securities fraud becoming a very significant regulatory concern to the extent where we have a law now, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, that says if I'm a public company that sold stock to the public, it's trading um, and can be traded by the public, that I have strong obligations to prevent securities fraud. I have strong obligations to ensure that my financial reports are accurate. I mean, this is a law that, that has been seen by many as, as being quite burdensome on public corporations. And I think part of um, the implication of my book is to explain, you know, why do we have this law? Why, why do we have this sort of regulation? And to me, it's, a, it's sort of a reality of being a public corporation that there are structural pressures to maintain your valuation that result in a systematic incentive to commit uh, securities fraud, to deceive investors by releasing misleading uh, financial information and other information uh, to them in order to inflate your stock price. And that's what warrants a structural response, a structural law that says, if I'm a public corporation, if I have reached that status, then I have certain obligations. I have certain obligations. And so that's part of the um, part of the uh, point of the, the book is to show why uh, we have such strong regulation of public corporations today. In your introduction, you discuss a little bit about the history and background of securities fraud. And you talk about how when securities law first was coming into existence in the United States in the, uh, in the 30s, in the wake of uh, the great stock market crash, that there wasn't really this idea that securities fraud was something that big companies would be involved in, that it was actually more of a, of a threat for uh, investors looking at smaller companies. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the, the early days of securities fraud looked like prior to the uh, case studies that you look at in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great, it's a great point. And, you know, if you think about the early 20th century, the public corporation looked different than it did today in, in many respects. Um, we don't have um, the same uh, sort of uh, scientific management techniques that became more prevalent in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, investors are very different than they were today. They're more um, individuals, retail investors, as opposed to institutional investors. And if you think about the context of um, the 1929 crash and the, uh, the laws passed in 1933 and 1934 in response, I think that there were really a couple things Congress was concerned about. One was um, the new company that was selling securities for the first time. Um, the, uh, there's an allegation that there were billions and billions of dollars of worthless securities sold by these, um, these, these speculative companies, these um, uh, uh, fraudulent companies to investors, and those stocks became basically worthless. Um, the other concern was speculation in the marketplace, people sort of manipulating the stock market um, through uh, various pools of investors who would buy and sell stock to kind of uh, manipulate the stock price. And so 
Um, and so the perception of those laws is that we're trying to regulate these new companies, these new companies that are, that are not so established, the more reputable companies. Um, they don't have an incentive, as much of an incentive to commit securities fraud. Um, they're regulated by the New York Stock Exchange, which is screening them. Um, and so they're not as much of a concern. And, and this perception lasts at least to the 1960s. Um, in the 1960s, you have the Securities and Exchange Commission um, commissioning a, a very uh, a large study of securities markets. And one of the things they conclude in that report is that the vast majority of companies, more than 90% of the companies that uh, may have allegedly committed fraud are smaller companies that are not listed on stock exchanges. And at the time, those companies were not subject to mandatory disclosure requirements. Um, and so uh, the belief was that it's these smaller companies that are committing fraud, and so we have to do something about these uh, about these smaller companies. And at the time, the 1940s and 50s, um, you know, leading up to the 60s, you know, this is a time of U.S. economic dominance after World War II. Um, corporations in the U.S. were uh, not only leaders in our domestic market, but internationally. Um, they were run by expert managers who were steeped in sort of the new managerial science of the time, and their expertise was seen as necessary to uh, run these gigantic uh, entities, these giant corporations. Um, and investors were just individuals like you or me who really didn't have the expertise to challenge managers and to really kind of question what they were, were doing. And so um, what, what changes somewhere in the 1950s and 1960s is that you have institutions becoming more involved in, in stock markets. And these large institutions are more sophisticated. They want to analyze stocks. They want to um, essentially uh, make sure that the valuations of stock are relatively accurate. And so we begin having more research analysts, research analysts who work for Wall Street banks, um, who are studying these companies, um, and they're trying to predict their earnings, predict their revenue in order to assess um, what their valuation uh, should uh, should be. Um, and, and part of what these research analysts are doing is they're getting information from inside the company because these managers have gotten better at projecting revenue and earnings uh, within the corporation because they're managing these large organizations, they're allocating capital uh, within those companies. And so they need uh, various metrics and projections to assess how these various divisions are doing. And so as they get better at doing this, uh, the research analysts basically say, we want this information too. And the information um, gets leaked out in various ways. It's not systematically released. And so then we begin having sort of a, 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 sort of a, a system of projections that is evaluating a corporate performance. Um, and so that, in, in my, my view, is what changes in, in sort of the 1950s and 60s is that um, investors become more demanding and have a way of of valuing these larger public companies. Um, and, you know, there's some large um, public companies that collapsed in scandal around the 1970s. Um, the Penn Central Railroad, for example, is a chapter in the book. And there's another company called Equity Funding that's about five minutes from where I'm sitting here um, in, in Los Angeles. Um, New York Stock Exchange Company that basically fabricated um, the sale of insurance policies. They literally made up policies that they claimed to have sold to people who did not exist. Um, when that was revealed, that was a huge scandal. So there was a, an initial wave of concern in the 1970s. Um, the concern sort of dies down in the 1980s. And you know, as late as the, as the late 1980s, early 1990s, there are a number of, um, of reports uh, by various uh, commissions that look at the issue of securities fraud. And and they conclude that it's it's mostly small companies, even in the late 80s or 1990s. And so um, what happens in the, the late 1990s, early 2000s, is that you have a sort of a wave of these uh, accounting frauds at, you know, big pump public companies like Xerox, you know, sort of the iconic copy machine maker, not a, you know, not a small company, it's a company that is, has existed for decades, very important company. Um, they're penalized $10 million by the SEC for a very significant securities fraud, and then you get Enron and WorldCom. And so um, the, the changes begin in the 1960s and 1970s, 
Um, but it's really not until the late 90s, early 2000s that we think, hey, large companies are vulnerable to securities fraud as well. And I think part of the foundation for this is the changes in the stock markets that we saw in um, the 1960s or so. Your first case study is the, the case study of Xerox. So I was wondering if you could just explain for listeners the securities fraud committed there uh, and the incentives, uh, the, the sort of the corporate incentives, not just individual incentives at play, but the corporate incentives to uh, commit accounting fraud. Absolutely. Um, and one of the sort of the patterns we see in, in major securities frauds by public companies is you see a company that was once dominant in its market um, that um, was very, very successful for a long time. Um, and then something changes. Something changes so that it is no longer as confident that it can maintain its performance. Um, and what companies can do in those situations is they may try to hide the fact that they are declining. And I think Xerox sort of fits within that particular uh, pattern. Um, this is as you know, the iconic inventor of the copy machine in the 1960s. It has a monopoly um, initially on copies that can be made um, on plain paper. It used to be that when I make copies, I had to buy a special chemically treated sort of paper that was expensive. And when I can make copies based uh, using just uh, regular paper, that makes copying much cheaper. And so they, you know, very interestingly, they were one of the first companies that revolutionized um, the use of projections because they had all of these copy machines that they would be leasing to their customers. And the copy machines had a meter that measured how many copies were being made. Um, and they could sort of use that to very precisely uh, track their performance and project performance in the future. And so they were very confident about making projections about um, their future performance and the stock price rises exponentially. By the 1980s, they're facing uh, competition from uh, foreign copy uh, machine makers from Japan. And so then the story becomes, we're going to shift uh, to becoming more efficient. We're going to use management um, and uh, really uh, manage our company in a way to uh, make sure that we are beating the competition. And that seems to work uh, for, for some time. Um, by the 1990s, uh, Xerox is facing... Uh, the pressure of the internet. And if I have a digital revolution where I can email um, PDFs of documents to my coworkers, I don't need to make any as many copies as before. And so um, they are faced with sort of an existential threat. And um, and so what they what they do is they begin um, to move forward billions of dollars of revenue that they were going to earn in later periods in violation of generally accepted accounting principles. And the basic idea of GAAP is that you have to recognize revenue when it is earned. Um, and revenue I'm earning in the future has to be recognized in later periods. Um, but they abruptly changed um, their application of, uh, of certain accounting rules and policies. Uh, so the effect is that billions of dollars of, of revenue come forward. And why, why are they doing this? Well. The reason is that if they don't do this, they are going to have to report um, no growth in revenue or earnings. And they're basically competing against these internet companies that are getting very high valuations based upon the prospect of future growth. If they are just reporting flat growth, their stock price is not going to be doing so well. And so they basically engage in a systematic effort, which goes so far as to having two separate sets of books uh, within the company. They, they, you know, they fire auditors who try to resist um, what they are doing. Um, and the effect of this is that they are meeting uh, their quarterly projections, which are fairly ambitious in a consistent manner. Um, there's a front page story in the Wall Street Journal where uh, the, uh, the CEO says, you know, we're beating back the digital revolution and he's pointing to that double digit earnings growth. And and so um, the, the key question in these sorts of cases is, you know, did the managers just make a mistake? Did they just make a mistake about accounting rules? And their argument often is, we're not experts in accounting. We're just doing what the auditors allow us to do. And, you know, we, we basically got them to sign off on this. 
And so we thought it was okay. We thought we're not violating any uh, rules. We don't intend to deceive anyone because we think we're just working within um, the various rules. But what the SEC says is that, you know, this is really uh, part of a story you're telling to investors, a deceptive story that you are uh, trying to use to convince investors that your revenue and earnings are growing. And, and um, in fact, what you're doing is you're increasing the risk of the company because if I'm moving all of this revenue forward from later periods, I have to make that up in later periods or I'm going to have to report a loss. And so investors really uh, should be aware of this um, right away. Um, and, um, and so this was a, a corporate scheme, in my view. It was a scheme that um, was, was meant by the management team to uh, create the appearance that the corporation was not in decline, that it was um, was continuing to perform. And I, and I sense perhaps that part of the reason was they have this strong history, the strong tradition of being an iconic American company, and they can't bear the fact that the company is is in decline. Um, and so at least part of the reason for to me is that they are, in a sense, trying to buy time for the corporation to sort of pull off a miracle in later periods, to sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat um, and uh, basically make up that lost revenue. Um, and, and so I think it's um, a bit more complicated than the story of other, there's some other securities frauds where you might think, well, it's that's the, they're, they're these greedy individual managers who um, they have a bunch of stock and they want to keep that stock price high so they can sell it. And they sell, sell millions of dollars while they're committing this fraud um, before the company collapses. And so it's really a, what we call an agency cost explanation in um, in, 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 in the uh, in, in sort of the corporate law context where you have a faithless agent, somebody who's working for the shareholders who is basically acting in their own personal interests to portray the corporation. And you know in in my literature, in the corporate law literature, the dominant explanation for securities fraud is that it's an agency cost problem where, um, you have these greedy executives who started getting paid more in stock during the 1990s, and that's why they're inflating um, the earnings of the company. And, and I, I think part of the point of the book is that some of the frauds fit that story, but I don't think all of them do. I think they're more systematic uh, pressures on uh, public companies that lead management teams to do this. And in the Xerox case in particular, um, the SEC doesn't come out with allegations saying that you you guys did this to to inflate your 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 uh, stock packages right that was not really the only story and um, the the fact that they penalized Xerox the corporation 10 million dollars uh, was a significant step because prior to this they would mainly penalize uh, individual executives um, maybe the auditors and and those individuals were penalized as well in Xerox but the fact that you have, a very significant penalty the company is supposed to pay, in my view, set the message that we can't just reduce this to bad actors within the company. There's something more systematic going on where the corporation has an incentive to commit securities fraud. And, um, you know, uh, some of your listeners may not know that the SEC didn't have the power to impose penalties for securities law violations until about 1990. It took them about a decade to penalize a major corporation, a significant amount, and now it's fairly routine. And so there's something that changes. There's a shift with respect to how we view um, securities fraud, and uh, we think of corporations as, as as committing securities fraud much more than it's just a problem of, uh, of individuals. And this has certainly led to some concerns in the policy world about corporate penalties and whether or not they are effective. Um, and one a uh, prominent argument with respect to corporate penalties uh, is simply that, well, aren't the shareholders basically just bearing those costs? And so why are you punishing the shareholders for something that the managers did? Um, and this is actually a pretty longstanding uh, sort of debate um, about corporate penalties. And, and, and my view is that, look, the shareholders are part of the corporation in a sense. They, um, they benefit when, when frauds were. And so they should bear some of that cost. They should bear some of that corporate penalty. And it is, in fact, appropriate um, to penalize um, corporations in a way that may ultimately be borne by some of these various shareholders.
Um, the other sort of issue that comes up is, are these penalties just excessive? Are they inflating? Um, that's also an issue because, you know, $10 million is small potatoes these days where, you know, you see companies like Boeing um, and General Electric paying $100 million, $200 million um, in the modern day. So um, there's sort of separate issues that arise when you are uh, penalizing corporations, but sort of the basic uh, reason we're doing so, in my view, is, is supported by uh, the fact that I think this is there's a there's a corporate incentive to commit securities fraud in addition to an individual incentive. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Another case that you look at, and I was actually surprised to see this on here, uh, what was a uh, a fraud case against Apple um, in the 1980s. Uh, I was wondering if you could describe this case and also just the general phenomenon of securities fraud uh, con- being concentrated in the technology sector. It's a great, great question and very relevant for today. Um, and... Uh, we we see a lot of technology companies that have either gone public or have very high private valuations. And, you know, you often may ask, well, how how is this company worth $50 billion when it's not yet profitable? And, and the answer is that um, investors are speculating. They believe that um, the, the this tech company is going to uh, develop products or its products that have currently been developed are going to be very profitable in the future. Um, and so we, we see that we've seen this in a number of um, instances in our uh, stock market's history, but it really takes off during uh, the 1980s when the computer industry is booming. And um, we uh, see uh, many computer companies developing technologies um, for this new industry, and investors are willing to pay more for their stock based upon the assumption that the product is going to be successful. Um, now, the problem with that situation, though, is that if I learn the product is in trouble and has suffered a setback, I may very quickly adjust my expectation for the company's stock price. And so technology company stock prices could be very volatile going up and down, um, and uh, these tech companies, knowing this, had an incentive to sort of delay bad news um, of uh, products that they were developing. And a nice example where this may have happened was um, Apple Computer. Um, Apple at the time was not the world's most valuable company. Uh, it was a newly public company that had been formed, as we know, uh, in a garage just a few years before it does a, a wildly successful IPO valuing it at billions of dollars virtually overnight. Um, and this is because of the Apple II computer, um, which really um, was one of the first personal computers that was ubiquitous. Everybody had one. And so what Apple is is trying to do in the early 1980s is show it's not a one-hit wonder. Um, the Apple III was not as successful, and um, they were looking for a new product that could achieve the same set of uh, same type of success that the Apple II did. And so they were developing a computer called the Lisa. And the idea of the Lisa is, is that it was an office computer. 
um, which is a bigger market, as you know, than um, than sort of buying computers for individual use. Corporations have more money. They're buying computers for all of their uh, workers. And so they wanted to, uh, to compete by um, creating this new business computer. And, you know, this was the, one of the first computers that um, had a mouse. And there's sort of story, interesting link in, in the book that I know between Apple and Xerox, where Xerox had this research laboratory on the West Coast, where they were actually they had developed sort of a, uh, a computer using a mouse. And, and Steve Jobs visits that particular uh, laboratory, as we know, and, and, and basically, you know, sees this mouse and uses it for the Lisa and the Macintosh, which is sort of the, the home computer version of, uh, of, of the Lisa. And so there's kind of a, a, an interesting link between these two, uh, two key studies in, in, in my book. Um, so um, the, the Lisa had this high performance uh, disk drive called the Twiggy that they were developing. And this is the day before we have uh, cloud computing and large hard drives. You have to put all of your programs on a floppy disk. And uh, so it's sort of important for this uh, computer success that they really uh, touted this in statements to investors. And they basically um, you know, issued a number of press releases that could have been read as implying that the Twiggy was essentially done. Um, they basically said it, it's a high-performance disk drive that's better than other disk drives. We've subjected it to three years of testing, sort of implying that it had survived those tests. Um, the reality, though, was that the Twiggy was not done. And internally, there were memos circulating among engineers saying that there are problems with the product. Um, we're going to probably have to delay the launch by many months in order to fix the problems. Uh, Steve Jobs says something like, I have no faith in the group that is working in the Twiggy. Um, and so they are presenting an optimistic portrayal to the public while internally, um, and this is all information we got through the litigation process, internally they believe um, that uh, the product has significant defects. And so um, the sort of question that arose after investors sued Apple because the Twiggy did fail and had to be discontinued, and the stock price falls by about 20% when the Twiggy uh, fails, and investors sue Apple and a number of its executives. Um, and their argument is simply that we deserve the full truth. You didn't tell, you basically misrepresented something to us because you didn't want to acknowledge that there was a problem, and that's securities fraud. Um, that violates Rule 10b-5, um, which says that if I make a material misstatement to investors and that affects the, the value of the stock they purchased, that they have the right to sue me. Um, and a lot of investors did this in a controversial manner in the 1980s. Um, and many of these lawsuits were seen as not all that good with, you know, they were just seen as basically suing companies whenever the stock price went down as technology companies had volatile stock prices. Uh, but the plaintiff's argument, which I think is a fair one, is that you, you know, we deserve to know what's going on, and that if there's a problem, you should um, basically disclose that if you choose to tout the product publicly. Um, the defendant's argument at trial during the litigation was that, you know, this is not a workable standard. This is just how product development works. There's a fire drill at the end, um, and they have uh, sort of this line in their brief, which I thought was. Um, was, was sort of uh, spot on that, you know, you shouldn't penalize us for memos that frustrated engineers uh, are writing under pressure because that's just how things work. You know, there's always something that could go wrong with the product at the end. And if you require us to pay money to investors every time um, there's a product failure, you're going to tax innovation and we're not going to be able to operate in these conditions. Um, so this should not be considered a securities fraud. Um, the jury ultimately agrees with the plaintiffs and awards them $100 million. Uh, this sends shockwaves through Silicon Valley because once you know a verdict like this could be this large, all these other lawsuits that are pending, their settlement value goes way up because you know there's a risk um, of a catastrophic damages verdict. And the verdict does get reduced and the case settles for less. Um, but this is one of a number of things that galvanizes the technology community. Um, and they push for the passage of a law in 1995 called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. And that basically um, puts procedural uh, limitations on lawsuits brought by private investors against 
uh, technology companies. And so we see this regulation, this law in 1995, it's, it's spurred by this dynamic of lawsuits being spurred by various ways these tech companies are being valued in the 1980s. And so you see the laws sort of adapting as the concept of securities fraud changes and creates new problems and contested issues and uh, definitions. And one of the things that PSLRA has, it has a safe harbor for projections, which we talked about earlier as being developed in the 1950s and 60s. And it basically says that, you know, if you have cautionary statements and, and you don't have knowledge of the projection is wrong, then you're not going to be liable under Rule 10b-5. Um, so we see that projections are, in a sense, spurring a type of regulation by the mid-1990s. And sort of one of the ironies, I think, of the PSLRE in 1995 is just seven years later that Sarbanes-Oxley comes back and says, well, actually, every public company needs to ensure that they're not committing securities fraud. And so we see a fairly short time, you know, period where there's there's sort of a um, a reversal, if you will, in regulatory policy. Where in '95 we're sort of skeptical that securities fraud is really a systematic problem, and we're putting restrictions on private plaintiffs. By the early 2000s, that that shifts, and and we begin we have a, a very different perspective, um, and and that is a result of the frauds in the late '90s and early 2000s um, that. We're not just tech companies, but we're companies in a, a wider range of, of industries that were uh, manipulating earnings and uh, misstating um, earnings. Um, now, sort of one final point about securities fraud involving tech companies is that uh, this is a very controversial theory in the 1980s. But you think about um, the present day, um, two major criminal convictions over the last year um, and they basically rely upon the same theory that was advanced in Apple, that you're lying about the development of a product. Um, the first of these was Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Um, they claim they have a machine that can run multiple tests on a single drop of blood. They do not have that machine. Interestingly, who was her idol? Steve Jobs. Um, and so she, you know, her defense was, I genuinely believe that the product was going to work at the end of the day. And the jury didn't quite believe that and said she crossed a line in what she said about the product. Other example, um, just this fall, uh, uh, Trevor, a man named Trevor Milton, the founder of a company called Nikola, um, which is developing uh, clean energy semi-trucks, semi also convicted of criminal securities fraud in the Southern District of New York. And he makes a number of false statements about the development of the, uh, of the trucks. The most notorious is that they, he claims that the truck could be driven. It's a prototype. Um, and so they film it, filming, film it moving, and they post this on YouTube, but they don't disclose that they had just taken it to the top of a hill and it was just kind of rolling down an incline. Um, and so he's misrepresenting the state of development of that product. Um, and so um, we see that particular theory, it, 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 it survives. And then I think that's a recognition that more and more in today's markets, investors are projecting out into the future what this technology company is going to earn, and that poses kind of special problems and incentives to mislead investors about that future performance. Yeah, the, the, the Trevor Milton case is really interesting, and there's uh, this uh, organization, Hindenburg Research, that does a lot of really fascinating uh, studies on securities fraud, uh, and I believe that they were the organization that put out the that research report that ended up taking him down. Uh, it's also really interesting too, sort of looking at the PSLRA in 1995 and then the Sarbanes-Oxley bill as kind of bookends on the tech boom and bust. Uh, so you mentioned the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, bill or law. Uh, I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about that law uh, and why it came about and its, its importance and relevance for today. Yeah, it's a law that um, has been controversial. It has been controversial. It was passed basically a few weeks after WorldCom files for bankruptcy. And um, earlier versions of the law were circulating um, around uh, a little bit after Enron, but there was kind of some, you know, Congress is a bit of an impasse. And, and WorldCom, though, really, you know, um, made this a crisis in the, the minds of the public. And so it was passed with 
pretty overwhelming bipartisan support, which we don't see very often um, in today's world. And President Bush, Republican, signs this into law. And so it's a pretty extraordinary uh, statute just because of the bipartisan support for it. And, you know, an important point um, that I hope comes through in the book is that even before Sarbanes-Oxley was passed, uh, the SEC was making efforts to address what it saw as an epidemic of um, earnings fraud in public corporations. Uh, the chair of the SEC, Arthur Levitt, back in 1999, a few years before Sarbanes-Oxley gives a speech called The Numbers Game at NYU Law School, and he basically highlights um, what he views as a systemic practice of uh, companies just trying to meet their earnings and not missing that even by a penny a share because he knew that their stock price would would fall. And so he's highlighting this uh, problem um, years before Enron and WorldCom. And you know, 99 was a time when we're not in recession. One of the criticisms of Sarbanes-Oxley is that, you know, this is just a law that was passed in response to a recession, an economic crisis. But the SEC had highlighted this basic issue years beforehand when we're in the midst of this internet boom. And so they were concerned about the problem earlier. And another interesting thing about the speech is that Levitt says that it's not just a problem of uh, securities fraud disclosure. It's also kind of an issue of corporate governance. Um, shouldn't boards um, pay attention to this and prevent companies from doing this? And so he contrasts the good audit committee of the board with the bad one, which doesn't meet very often. And that's kind of an interesting step because the SEC traditionally has not regulated corporate governance. But we're beginning to see this as, as, as a broader issue of governance in the public corporation because this is a common pressure on public companies. And so initially, the SEC tries to uh, sort of pressure the stock exchanges into adopting various reforms to address the issue, and they do. Um, they have done this even before Sarbanes-Oxley. And, and somewhat embarrassingly, just a, a, you know, in the summer of 2001, a few months before Enron, Arthur Levitt um, is, is saying that, you know, the problem is basically solved. I can't, you know, I, I go and talk to a lot of companies and they tell me how good of a job the audit committees, committees are doing because they're more independent. And so part of the reason why Congress has to act, in my view, is that there was already a first response, right? They had been kind of dealing with the problem through less invasive means. And then when on top of that, you have these two additional public companies um, falling for bank filing for bankruptcy very suddenly, allegations of securities fraud, you need a more uh, invasive statutory mandate. Um, and so there are many provisions in uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. It contains a lot of things, but um, the first um, is that it, it tries to ensure um, that the auditing process has more integrity, that you have independent audit committees, uniform definitions of who is an independent director. And so if you're a public corporation over a certain size, you have to have um, audit committees that are completely independent, independent directors, meaning that they're not on the management team. And I think the idea behind that is if, if you have managers sitting on the audit committee, then they um, have an ability to influence the audit, audit, and and they have the incentive. They're the ones who are making these finance these decisions on reporting, and so you want to have independent directors um, who are overseeing that process. Um, also, reforms try to reduce conflicts of interest by auditors. So, auditor-related reforms is one bucket of uh, auditor and corporate governance reforms. Um, the other major set of provisions relates to the internal controls over financial reporting within um, the public corporation. And this has been one of the most controversial provisions. Um, companies, public companies have been required to have internal controls since, a, since the 1970s, actually. And this was sort of uh, partly a result of these, these the early 70s. Uh, public company frauds, Penn Central equity funding. And then on top of that, there was a scandal where it was discovered a lot of public corporations were paying bribes uh, overseas. And, you know, you know, today's news, I don't know if you saw Sam Bankman fried founder of FTX, has now been charged under this prohibition of paying foreign, foreign bribes on top of all the other things that he has uh, been being, being faced with. And so there's a question of, well, how, how are you using your 
you know, public company funds in an illegal manner, right? How are you doing this? How are you, you know, keeping track of funds within your company? Because some of these companies had slush funds and that, that, that raises a whole set of issues. So um, there's a law called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And one of the things it does is it says you have to keep accurate books and records and have internal controls over financial reporting. And so that basic requirement is put into place in the 1970s. But with the Reagan administration in the 80s, the SEC at the time signaled, we're just not going to enforce this. We're not going to bring any action enforcing the internal controls provisions. Um, just use your judgment as to what is a good internal control. Um, so that was the foundation. What Sarbanes-Oxley does, though, it, is, it, is it adds um, another layer of regulation that add, puts some bite into these internal controls because um, every year the management has to assess the internal controls and basically say, you know, assess whether they will detect material weaknesses um, and they have to sign certifications that, um, that they don't know of any uh, significant material misstatements within the company. Uh, also, an auditor has to get involved, right? It's not just up to management. The auditor has to review the management review and attest that the internal controls uh, meet various standards. Um, and so now we have um, not only this abstract idea, have internal controls, they have to be verified. And an auditor is basically uh, doing this. Um, and there's a, a new uh, regulatory organization called the PCAOB that was formed, Public Company Audit, Audit Oversight Board. They regulate the auditors. And one of their guidances that they give to the auditors in reviewing internal controls is that they say, one of the things you look at is, are they preventing kind of misstatements to meet projection entries at the very end of the period? Um, and so it's interesting to see, again, this influence on projections that we're seeing in um, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Um, and um, it is increased the cost of being a public corporation. Um, the costs are pretty manageable if you're a large public corporation. The problem is if you're a smaller one. Um, and so Congress has exempted um, uh, smaller public companies from the regulation and has also made it easier for companies going public to avoid um, internal uh, controls uh, reviewing for about five years or so. Um, but the, the, the sort of concern is that if I make it too expensive to be a public company, my incentive is to be private. And so we continually have to think about whether or not the this sort of regulation has been uh, has been justified. So looking at the current landscape today, uh, at, at the end of the book, you, you offer some some thoughts or suggestions about how securities law uh, might evolve to address frauds. Uh, so you know, what are some suggestions or some things that you might point listeners to check out or consider uh, having having heard, you know, some of the background information that you've described? You know, one of the things that um, you might see how it develops um, is that um, we are beginning to increasingly see uh, ESG matters uh, becoming more prominent in, in, in investing in markets. ESG stands for environmental, social and governance considerations. Um, there's more pressure on companies to disclose information about ESG risk. And I think part of the impetus for this is that um, there's a desire to look to long-term metrics for valuation, um, long-term ways of evaluating companies and how they might perform in the future. Now, there are a lot of other reasons why uh, some investors are pushing for ESG disclosure, but one of them, I think, is that we're trying to look beyond this world where we're just looking at, you know, are they meeting the projections? Are, is there more qualitative information that that we can get? And whether or not that'll be successful, you know, it is it is soon to be seen. But I think what is evident is that we're seeing more ESG securities fraud cases um, that have been filed, uh, especially by the SEC, and um, they are holding companies accountable when um, they are um, internally calculating ESG risks and know that the risk is high, but they're misrepresenting that risk to investors. And so this is an interesting evolution with respect to securities fraud and the concept of securities fraud that I would keep an eye on. Um, and, um, and so the general idea of trying to find ways of, of assessing long-term valuations, I do have a few proposals in the book that might um, help investors do that uh, more accurately. And and then I looked at history in a sense. In the 1970s, as projections become more influential and prominent, 
what we see is that their proposals to make all public companies issue projections, issue their projections, and give the basis for the projection, give information that allow investors to evaluate the, 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 the projection itself. Now, the SEC ultimately did not adopt this proposal. Um, and so companies in today's age, they're not required to issue their own projections. Um, they're not required to disclose what their projections are going to be. And I think the concern at the time was that this will be too difficult for companies because it's difficult for companies to project earnings. And that's still the case today. But if you think about the expectation after Sarbanes-Oxley that companies um, are able to manage their resources, they're able to uh, invest in internal controls, um, that may indicate that for public companies today, um, it might be more reasonable to say you should you know, take a position on what your projections are going to be, uh, give us those projections and tell us, give us information that allows to assess um, whether or not those projections are reasonable. Uh, because I think one of the big mysteries of a lot of, you know, public company valuations is why why are they so high? How are we getting, you know, Tesla worth three or four hundred billion dollars? And we have a sense that we just expect it's going to do well um, over time. Um, but if they were required to take a more explicit position on their projections and reveal information about how they're getting to that, you know, could that affect uh, sort of the a dynamic where um, value how how valuations are being set. Um, I think that process needs to be more transparent, and I think that would um, would would bolster the integrity of stock markets because I think some investors think to themselves, you know, what's what's the difference between speculating on Tesla versus buying crypto assets, cryptocurrency? It's just all this magical number, and it's very important for public companies uh, to have some integrity in their valuations, and I think that's what. Um, what we should be striving for um, in in our regulation. Well, James, thank you so much for for sharing all of that. That, that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, the book Valuation Treadmill: How Securities Fraud Threads the Integrity of Public Companies uh, is, is a really great book, and I think very relevant to the to this current moment. I think so often with the news, it's easy just to focus on the day to day, but you just do a great job of of really outlining the the long history. Uh, and I think helps make sense of, of a lot of the things going on today in, in the investing landscape. So James, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Cale. Thanks for the great, great questions as well. And I really appreciate um, the opportunity. Uh,